HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Meets. I'm your host, Aki Kotayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my guests. My guest today is Michael Majors, a documentary photographer and journalist who splits his time between New York City and Austin, Texas. Mike joined us in episode 307 and discussed his affection for Japanese culture and how he captures it through his lens, including works of Japanese shokunin artisans. And Mike is a frequent collaborator with the highly acclaimed publisher, Rose and Kingdoms, and served as lead photographer on their award-winning books, White Noodle Fish and Great Olive Pig. And by the way, the legendary author and television host, Anthony Bodin, was a partner and investor of Rose and Kingdoms. So um, Mike's image images are exhibited globally and have appeared in a wide range of digital and print publications, including Time, Smithsonian, Rogue Italia, CNN's Explore Parts Unknown, and the New York Times, to name a few. And he's joining us today to discuss his recent trip to the Hokkaido Island of Japan, which is the home of kombu and other treasured seafood. So we'll talk about how different Hokkaido's food culture is from the mainland of Japan, a story of 96-year-old autism who hand-processes kombu Unique dishes you should absolutely try in Hokkaido and much, much more. But before we start, Spanish is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japanese. And please write a review. We truly appreciate your feedback. Now, let's start our conversation with Michael Majors. Hello, Mike. Welcome back to the show. Hey, Kiko. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. 
Yeah, so I'm very excited to hear about your all experience in Hokkaido. So uh, for listeners who have not listened to episode 307, tell us your background, including your close relationship with Japan. Sure, and I'll, I'll try and keep it brief. Um, so my name is Michael Majors. Uh, as Akiko mentioned, I am a documentary photographer. And one of the areas that has really drawn me in and I think has been probably my most frequent port of call outside of the U.S. during the past decade has been Japan. Um, originally started working there for a book project called Rice Noodle Fish, which was the first in a series of three books that uh, I worked on with author Matt Goulding, who is a partner in the, the media company Roads and Kingdoms, and was Anthony Bourdain's business partner. Uh, Bourdain was our publisher at HarperCollins for that series. So Rice Noodle Fish you know, was a deep dive into Japanese food culture, but really through this idea of shokunin, the ethos of a shokunin, someone who really dedicates their life to the refinement of something, right? It's um, a word that you hear a lot in Jiro Dreams of Sushi, and it extends out across so many things in Japan, from something as simple as the person sweeping the steps on the metro to high-level artisans making ceramics and kimono and katana swords, these sorts of things. So I kind of became obsessed with uh, studying that and documenting that. And it's taken me back to Japan now. This last trip was my 20th visit. Typically, I'm there for three or four weeks at a time, you know, at least twice a year. And so it's a, it's a place that has really shaped my perspective in so many ways, spending time with people who are highly focused on this idea of sort of doing the small things well and, and the big things take care of themselves when it comes to the, um, the development and the creation of, um, of mastery and artistry, I think has been highly inspiring to me. And, and also, I just love to, you know, be there and it feels like home. Mm, right. Well, in episode 307, I was very impressed uh, with your curiosity and also unique way to look at uh, almost like cutting to a Japanese society, which is sometimes very difficult uh, to capture, but you did it so well. So I, I'm a big fan of your work as well. So, okay, so let's talk about your recent trip to Hokkaido. So you visited Hokkaido Island, which is the northern island of Japan near Russia from September 10th to 18th this year. So uh, I think it was a good time to visit before it ever gets too cold. So first of all, what kind of place is Hokkaido? It's a great question. Um, I think when people conceptualize Japan, their knowledge for the most part is of Honshu, which is the main island, which you know comprises cities like Tokyo and Kyoto and Hiroshima, um, Kanazawa, the highlights for most people when they travel for the first time to Japan. There are two more islands, uh, the island of Kyushu in the south, right, which is where you have uh, major cities like Fukuoka and Kagoshima. Um, and then you have the northern island. And the northern island of Hokkaido is a relatively new addition to Japan as a country. Um, it was territory of an uh, indigenous group called the Ainu, for much of its existence, the Ainu um, are of the same sort of descendant of the Inuit-type population that we saw across that kind of land bridge from Alaska, Russia, um, that entire area along the Aleutians. And um, 
it was quite brutally conquered, I think, with, you know, probably not a good idea to sugarcoat that at all. Um, but the, the island itself is, is relatively young in terms of its population compared to places um, like Kyoto, which is an incredibly old city. Uh, so I have been going to Hokkaido and really specifically two cities, Sapporo and then uh, Miseko, Hirafu area for many years, um, for over, I don't know, I guess eight or nine years now for two reasons. Um, one, I really love Sapporo. It, it's just kind of a perfect wintertime city. The, the atmosphere, the vibe, there's a grittiness to it that you oftentimes may not see in other large Japanese cities that I'm really drawn to visually. Um, the, the main sort of entertainment area, Suskino, is just alive and it's so fascinating. And, and when it's really cold in the dead of winter, you're kind of popping into these tiny bars and eating, uh, you know, lamb barbecue and jisukan, which is kind of a, a you know, famous dish there. You know, it's just something really attractive to all of that. And the reason I've been going to Niseko, which I think most people may have heard of because it is absolutely famous around the world for skiing and for incredible powder, is I have some really, really wonderful friends there that run um, one of the most legendary bars in the world. In fact, Rene Redzepi called it his favorite bar in the world. Uh, it's called Bargu, and my friends Yuana and Hizashi have always sort of taken care of me. Um, and typically, I'll end up staying with them for the tail end of most of my trips to kind of recover and recuperate and just hang out with friends. So I feel like I, I know those areas quite well. And, and you know, the, that, that corridor that runs from Sapporo up into Niseko, incredibly beautiful, right? I mean, you can take the train. It's a little two-car train that goes up from Sapporo uh, to Hirafu, Kuchan, Niseko area. And it runs, you know, with the mountains on one side and the ocean on the other side. And you can be there in the dead of winter, it will be snowing and you'll see guys surfing, you know, as you're, as you're kind of rolling up the coast and it's just a really magical place. So, you know, my uh, experiences in Hokkaido were largely uh, centralized to those areas. You know, obviously there, it's a big uh, space, it's a big Island. You, you have, you know, a number of other, uh, you know, types of geographies that you can explore. There's some really incredible mountains that aren't, Niseko and, you know, basically Anapuri, um, which is kind of one of the main uh, ski mountains there in Niseko um, that are outside of that. And you do see a lot of trekking there, especially in that late summer, early fall period as well. Mm, right. So it's a completely different idea of Japanese uh, land uh, because of the, the sizable uh, free land. <laughs> versus Tokyo or other big cities, like I mentioned. Um, but I think, um, like you said, uh, Hokkaido is a new addition to Japanese country, like the country of Japan. It used to be called Gaichi, means foreign land, <laughs> literally. So, yeah, it's a very interesting concept. But, you know, Japanese system, once it's integrated, it's really integrated. So um, there are issues of the, uh, the native population called Ainu that you mentioned, but um, in general, it's a really, um, Japanese people are really proud of having Hokkaido because it's such a beautiful um, place and also the unique food culture, which, which we're going to discuss now. So, uh, so before we start the part of the food culture, so I heard you were part of a tour group when you visited Hokkaido in September. So what kind of a trip or tour was it? A great question. So the team at Roads and Kingdoms, which 
you know, started out as a digital publication. I worked with them for, for many, many years on projects, you know, ranging from, uh, you know, the 40th anniversary of the military coup in Chile to, you know, following, you know, young surfers in Haiti, right? They covered all sorts of really incredible stories about the intersection of kind of politics and food and travel around the world. They were um, Anthony Bourdain's, you know, sort of only investment in the digital media world. And he obviously worked very closely with them. He edited a monthly column while he was still alive. And part of that was also the series of books that uh, co-founder Matt Goulding had written uh, that, that, that Tony was the publisher on. So over the past couple of years, one of the, the areas that they have pivoted to um, is basically creating these travel experiences that leverage a lot of their relationships that they have around the world with chefs um, and, and, and really with this incredible network that they've developed of chefs and journalists. Uh, Jose Andres is also involved uh, in, in the project, I believe, as an investor. Um, and the experience that they're really trying to deliver in these small group tours is, is kind of like the way like I might travel if I were you know, doing a deep dive on a particular story, except in much nicer accommodations, right? Uh, so you're really able to have these incredibly authentic, local, intimate experiences, um, but also doing them in you know, accommodations that are really incredible and having these kind of you know, end-to-end, small group, very intimate types of uh, you know, just access that I don't think you would typically get in your average tour experience or certainly you couldn't get on your own. So that's kind of the, the setup for this trip. And they will oftentimes have a photographer with them either uh, initially to scout the locations to help you know, deliver and develop content for marketing, um, but also uh, oftentimes on that first trip, you know, it's a way to, to really document the actual story. Again, you know, we're all kind of coming at this as journalists, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the training um, that, that most of the folks that are conceptualizing and creating and leading these tours have. And so that, that philosophy uh, and that um, drive to really go deep on something uh, extends across the entire experience. And I think it's something that the clients pick up too. So we had, uh, I think, five clients on this trip tend to keep the groups pretty small. And, you know, for me, it was really to document the itinerary, right? I mean, treat it as I would any other magazine article in a sense, um, you know, telling a story around these different experiences in Hokkaido um, and, you know, Hokkaido proper. And then obviously, as we started to explore a little bit further afield, traveling out to a really, really tiny island uh, off the far northwestern coast of Hokkaido called Vishiri, uh, which is known for this you know, very highly prized kombu. Uh, uni, uh, and a few other sea-based products. Does that sort of answer the question? I know there's there's probably a whole podcast <laughs> that you you and Nathan Thornburg, who's the you know leading this effort at Roads and Kingdoms, could have. Um, but you know that I think is kind of the the gist of it. Right. Okay. So um, this is a small group of people who are seriously obsessed with food culture and the culture of other uh, places on Earth, and they're well traveled and they're very, very serious about what, where they see, uh, what they see. So um, 
Right. So, and also the Mishiri Island, compared to what you said, Niseko or uh, Sapporo, they are relatively most southern part of Hokkaido, which is a huge land. But Nishiri is really the top, almost the north, northern part of Hokkaido, which means that not many people can easily visit. And uh, so that means this trip is especially special. So, um, so you focused on the city and the other, like um, the coastline of the northern part, the northern part of Hokkaido. So the trip started uh, in, you know, in and around Niseko and Hirafu um, and Yoichi for a couple of reasons. One, we were working very closely with uh, Ioana Morelli, who you know is really well known uh, throughout the world now, but she is you know, runs a bar in Niseko that, that is um, really incredible, but has also just been immersed. You know, she's been there 17 years. She's immersed in food culture there, um, whether it's sake or winemaking or fermentation, whatever it is, you know, Ioana really is an expert. And so she was helping guide and coordinate, right, that first part of the experiences for our travelers. Um, and so we started out in, you know, in really her backyard at some level. And in fact, we even hosted a lovely barbecue in her actual backyard. But um, the, um, the trip then moved down to Sapporo from there. Um, and from Sapporo, there's really two ways that you can access Rishiri. Um, one is to take a ferry from a, a small city, well, town, uh, on the northwestern coast of Hokkaido called Wakanai, which is not exactly the easiest place to get to. The other way to do it is to fly from the local city airport in uh, Sapporo, which is called, um, I think it's Okadama Airport, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And there's a small prop plane that flies, I think, twice a day. to mm. And that flight, you know, is going to be heavily dependent on weather. Certainly in the summertime, you have a better shot of making it. Nishiri, once you hit kind of November, December, is a place that you know, kind of hunkers down um, for the wintertime. You know, obviously, there's, there's some folks there that do some backcountry skiing and some trekking kind of thing. But you know, most people are not making the trek over in, in the dead of winter. So those are, you know, that's sort of how the trip unfolded. And you know, I can talk about some of these things that we're seeing in Hokkaido proper, obviously, as well as dig into, you know, what I thought was truly one of the most incredible experiences that I've had in Japan and visiting Nishiri and really seeing a lot of things that I'd never seen before. And again, this is coming from someone that's, that's spent a lot of time in this place with a lot of really exceptional access over the past decade. So for me to have my mind kind of blown like that was really a special experience. Mm. Okay, so uh, now we get the general idea of how remote <laughs> the places you visited and also how Hokkaido can be diverse. So we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into Hokkaido's unique food culture, including kombuen and everything I might witnessed. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American. And that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, 
including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and their rarest natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit Corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats on Heritage Video Network, HRN. I'm your host, Aki Kateyama, and my guest today is Michael Majors, who is a documentary photographer and journalist based in New York and Austin, Texas. And he recently visited the Hokkaido Island in Japan and discovered its unique food culture. So let's talk about、uh, everything you saw, you ate, <laughs> basically.、Wow. So、uh, the first of all, so we see. Is、uh, called motherland of kombu. And kombu、uh, is essentially an ingredient of Japanese food.、Uh, that's the most essential, I could say, one of the most essential, or if not the most essential, because it's the base of dashi stock, which is used to make the vast majority of Japanese dishes. And very importantly, kombu is a huge source of umami,、uh, which is the fifth taste after sweet, salty, sour, and bitter. And umami can effectively enhance your flavor experience in your mouth、uh, by enhancing uh, sweet, salt, uh, sweet, sweet and salty, and the kind of mitigate sour and bitter. So it's a key ingredient of Japanese cuisine. And、uh, they say 90% to 95% of kombu is harvested and processed in Hokkaido Island only. And they historically they shipped to Kyoto and Osaka, where rich people consumed in Edo period and earlier. So,、um, Hokkaido is a very notable area of kombu production, and especially、uh, Rishiri is one of the best kombu production areas. So,、uh, so, what type of kombu is Rishiri known for? So, you have.、Um... This very, very elevated flavor profile, as I understand it, from the dashi that is created from Ishii Kombu.、Um, it's incredibly clean and it has a lightness to it. So, very, very highly prized in kaiseki cuisine, for example, where you know, really food is so much more about subtraction than addition and having a Uh, mother broth, right? Which is, is you know, as you described, right? Dashi is the base of kind of so much of Japanese cuisine, especially when we're talking about the things like kaiseki.、Um, and so I think what I saw on the Rishiri, you know, and I wouldn't be able to tell you the exact species of seaweed, but there is a terroir effectively、um, from this place. And of course, there are, there are grades of that seaweed. You know, the hand harvested seaweed, hand cut seaweed. And what I witnessed was kind of familial groups doing this, right? Typically older,、um, seems to be the most highly prized. And,、mm. you know, I think that that, again, reflects this decades of experience, you know, generations of experience that go into understanding the entire process. Now, I think there are, you know, there, there is a specific type of kombu you and I have spoken about before, Tororu kombu, which I had never seen before outside of Ishiri, which is really a preparation of, of kombu that very, very finely shreds the seaweed 
like gossamer strands, you know, almost like cotton candy in terms of its um, lightness and texture that can then be utilized um, as, as a topic. You know, I actually, believe it or not, there is a ramen restaurant in um, Rishiri that some have said is the best ramen in Japan. Uh, and, and again, like, who knows, right? I mean, that is one of those absolutely unfalsifiable claims because there's a lot of amazing ramen throughout. You know. <laughs> right. uh, I would never make that claim myself, but part of what they fall back on is a broth that is heavily driven by local kombu. And then that tororo kombu is a topping for that ramen. So I had never seen that before. And mm. that was, you know, just incredible balance of flavor, right? Like, a classic shoyu-style ramen, but clean and light and with this depth of umami that was so well-balanced. It's just really beautiful, right? Totally unexpected. So I think that, that what you are really picking up, and I suspect that this goes for the uni as well, which is also incredibly yeah. Can I just stop there before oh, sure. we, we go yeah, yeah, yeah. to it? Um, so kombu, basically, like the Rishiri kombu, I mean, there are like many species, but top three, they say makombu, wells kombu, Rishiri kombu. And uh, like you said, Rishiri kombu is um, slightly harder than makombu. And uh, I mean, all three, those are the highest quality. And uh, but Rishiri kombu tend to be slightly saltier and the cleaner, so kaiseki chefs like that clean color because it doesn't uh, compete with other vegetables and other ingredients color. And the and makombu, of course, uh, that's another kind of sweeter and softer version of kombu. And the laus kombu, uh, they are uh, kind of more umami contained. So the point here is that it's like. It's like a grape or any kind of thing. You have a nuance based on uh, which species or variety combo you pick. But um, I think Irishiri is such a well-known and picked and processed in very cold area of Hokkaido, which is the coldest of cold of Japan. Uh, it has a very unique uh, flavors. And, um, and also the Tororo combo you mentioned. So... Um, basically, tororo is just that, you know, the kombu is very um, hard, dried seaweed. But before all those techniques of preservation was developed, the outside of kombu used to be a little moldy. So people decided to just shave off outside. And the, what's remaining is inside. And then if you shave it, it's almost like a fluffy kind of very fine like misty kind of texture and you put it in a liquid it gets so viscous and it's, it's like a mummy bone i think that's what uh, you taste in the ramen because it's a whole concentrated version of kombu it's, it's already uh, ready to explode the mummy in the soup so that's amazing and also you said the 96 year old craftsman was shaving kombu is that yeah. And, and I think that, again, well, one of the things that I've seen a lot in islands in Japan, whether it's Sado or, you know, even, even heading down to places like Yakushima, um, is that you do have a, a sort of a concentration of older folks that are sort of keeping some traditions alive. And Rishidi is no different. There are a, 
you know, numerous people that have been, you know, for decades basically doing the same thing. And this one uh, Chokunin that we spent some time with, uh, Sumu uh, Akimitsu, that was his name, 96 years old, had been working in this, you know, making Tororo Kombu since he was, you know, 11, 12, basically his family wow. business. His son also, you know, involved in it now. But the, you know, there's a really interesting, like when they, when you kind of hand um, harvest this stuff, you don't, you're not diving so much down into the water as I understand it. They make these um, like viewing portals for looking under the water without dropping your head in. I actually saw these at a hardware store in the Dishiri by the, by the ferry port, believe it or not. But it's sort of like a bucket and there's glass on, on one end of it. And then the other end, you can plop down into the ocean and you, you can hold this um, between your teeth. There's sort of a bar that goes across. You can hold it between your teeth and look down and kind of identify where this kombu is and how, you know, how, how mature it is, whether it's ready to be harvested, et cetera, et cetera. So, these guys also have these like insanely developed jaws um, from what I saw, I think from holding these things in their teeth. So again, I, I'd have to explore this a little bit further because, you know, I, I had this one experience with one Shokunin and from what I've been told, you know, this is something that is, um, you know, common, but a, a small group uh, on the Island in that everyone kind of has their own technique I did speak with um, some chefs, you know, in Tokyo, uh, folks that, that are, you know, running very high-end restaurants, and everyone sort of has their connection in Bishiri to get this stuff. So, you know, it's, it's very, very clear that, you know, it is really at the top of the food chain when it comes to the quality level of, of kombu. And, and I really, like, it's exactly as you said, that is the sense of terroir. It's funny, I actually, like, tried a little bit of seawater and the seawater even tastes kind of like the kombu, like the uni. Like it's very, it's just perfectly concentrated in its salty balance. I can't describe it. It was really remarkable. Um, it really was as if you were tasting the differences in a grape varietal or something like that um, that you would use to make wine. Right. So um, it's funny that you mentioned that how kombu is harvested. And uh, one thing we should know about kombu is very hard to um, farm because natural uh, white kombu goes from bottom to upward. And for farming, it goes to the other direction of the gravity. And uh, with all those quality-oriented kombu production, you have to make it wild. And then Harvesting is hard because you have to process everything under the sun from harvesting, kind of drying, and then cutting, and then eventually uh, packing up after grading. Uh, the gra- grading comes after that. So um, it's a very difficult, labor-intensive um, <laughs> process, all the process, and uh, you need the luck of the sunshine as well. So this is really just not uh, umami-rich seaweed. It's a very, very... Um, difficult work of art and and so that's the to prove it the grading system you mentioned earlier is just uh, ridiculously strict and it's done the third party of uh, the comp producers and um, it's commonly put, expected by color shininess weight 
thickness, width, dryness, shape, damage level, and amount of white powder on the surface, which is actually good. And uh, uh, it's really strict. And then we reflected on the price you can see in other part of the city, in Tokyo, Kyoto, Osaka. So um, just the point of discussing kombu, it's really a worker pride of workers and families. Usually it's a very small family-based operations or like small um, industrial units of operation only in Hokkaido. So um, I'm so glad, Mike, that you witnessed all those things and especially uh, that 96-year-old man. <laughs> it's like amazing um, existence to represent how kombu production is important for Japanese culture and uh, people historically rely on people like this 96-year-old craftsman. So, yeah. Um, and then, by the way, did you capture those pictures and can we see it somewhere? Yes, I did capture them. I'm not exactly sure where they're going to go just yet, uh, but I can definitely send you a couple to see it. And that goes, you know, for, for sort of uni harvesting as well, and some of these groups that were doing exactly as you say, right? Basically laying out kombu on the side of the road to let it dry in the sun, cutting it, um, and then it does get, you know, it gets dried uh, and then boxed. The boxes are, are tied with different colored ribbon representing the grade, and then that determines, you know, the price, and you know, they are shipped off to the mainland essentially. And mm-hmm. you know, as you say, there are these kind of co-ops that kind of manage those, um, aggregating that up to the warehouse level and then sending it out to the, to the um, various distributors and buyers on, uh, on Honshu. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I, I think that um, there, for me, there's definitely more to explore in the city. I would like to see more of these processes. And I think your point, which is really exceptionally well taken is that these are not processes that can be automated or mass produced. So, you know, even though you have someone who is 96 years old who's still doing this, in order for it to continue to maintain a high level of concentration and placement in Japanese food culture, there have to be people that take it over, you know, from that previous generation and keep doing it because it is just simply not something that's going to be done by machine. Mm, right. And then the highest uh, grade kombu is shipped to Kyoto, Osaka, and then top kaiseki restaurants have allocation. And uh, it's very hard to have a new restaurant to have that allocation because restaurants themselves are, um, you know, like generations old. So that's how uh, kombu production permeates into Japanese food culture in kaiseki and other uh, very important uh, you know, establishments. So um, um, there's a, there used to be a ship um, called uh, the Kombu Road and was shipped from Hokkaido to Kyoto uh, on, uh, on the, uh, the side of Japan Sea side because it's the, the quieter water than going through the uh, Pacific Ocean. So uh, there's a huge history you can probably find, listeners can find uh, some uh, literatures to, to learn about it because it's such an interesting history. And uh, one time I visited uh, one big merchant who did uh, import from Hokkaido, uh, the kombu import, uh, and then allocated to Kyoto. And uh, I visited their warehouse. They had um, 
a company that's aged for 28 years. So um, there's a huge um, thing you can discover. Kombu is it's not just a food item. It's just the whole Japanese history itself. So anyways, um, so let's talk more about what you studied to mention because I was very curious about, you said sea urchin in Hokkaido you tried? Hokkaido is absolutely known for, I mean, as an island, um, certainly known for being a great place to harvest sea urchin. Certainly places like the Hakodate fish market, for example, are, you know, well known for being able to get amazing product. There is you know, incredible Toro bluefin tuna uh, season as well in Hokkaido. But, and again, I, I didn't really understand the significance of this, but this uh, unique that does come from Dishidi is also highly prized. I, and again, I, you know, hard to know from an exchange rate perspective and everything else, but I've heard that, um, you know, a kilogram of this can, can, you know, command really, really high prices, basically. I don't know, like 40,000 yen, something like that. I think I read something in, in the Japan Times, you know, recently, maybe a year or two ago about this. So, you know, it's, it is highly prized. The season is relatively short. It kind of runs, I think, you know, July through August, June through August, kind of a thing. So early September is still a good time to be there. You don't really know when the uni harvest is going to come in. So I think we were incredibly fortunate as a group, especially when you have clients with you, that we landed, uh, you know, around 4.35 a.m. that the harvest is coming in, whether it's been successful or not. And so we were able to essentially land around 8.15 in the morning and go straight to, you know, a small hut where the sea urchin were being cut open and, you know, prepared and boxed basically to go right back on a plane and, and head down to Tokyo. So, uh-huh. yeah, so this is, you know, it's about as fresh as it gets. Um, I personally am an uni fanatic. I, I love it. Um, so I was absolutely in heaven having these, you know, these massive, because the actual meat on the, um, on the sea urchin was quite large, right? I mean, you see varying sizes depending on the origin of the sea urchin, but the meat on this, uh, I think long spine, um, that you had in the Dishiri was just gigantic. And the flavor was as pure, um, a blast of like getting hit by an ocean wave as you can imagine. And I think what also really blew me away is how many different preparations of uni I saw while I was eating at various places around the city. So it wasn't just like, oh, here we have some great raw uni like you might have at a great sushi restaurant, but other preparations as well, cooked in various forms, prepared in various forms that just gave me a different respect for the ingredient and also Again, looking at folks who, you know, this is how they live. This is what they've been eating and consuming when it is in season, um, you know, as much as possible. Mm, right. So the, um, I think in, in throughout Japan, you can capture uh, sea urchin. But I think the one you saw in Hokkaido, I think it's a, the like main species, Kitamurasaki uni and also Ezobahu uni. And it, you got lucky to be able to see that orange, sparkling orange uni. Um, I'm getting hungry now. So, yeah, and it's a really a different um, food environment because Hokkaido is much colder. And also, I mean, I'm sure you saw salmon and ikura 
from Hokkaido. Is that something you experienced as well? Yes, many times. And in fact, I'll say the ikura that I had in Rishiri was the best ikura I have ever had. Um, again, incredibly mild, I think cured for 24 hours in the preparation that I had, I believe. Um, so lightly cured, right? Which is not uncommon to help take some of that intense flavor out of it to mellow that out. But, you know, a- absolutely incredible in terms of size and texture and flavor. Um, it's a, it really is a concentration of incredibly important ingredients to Japanese cuisine in this one really, really small place. And there's not even that many places to eat on the island, right? There's kind of like one main izakaya and you know, a couple of other places, right? So it's not as if, it's not a place where you would necessarily um, go to restaurant crawl. Mm. But the ingredients themselves are, are so good that they really just stand on their own. Um, that's, you know, it's really, for me, again, like it doesn't, it sort of takes a lot to move the needle in Japan, right? I feel like I've seen a lot. Um, I, I was really blown away. Uh, I probably have used that phrase ad nauseum at this point, talking to people about it, but I'm an evangelist now for Yahudi. Like go experience it. It is a place that will shift your perspective. Mm, interesting. Right. Um, but, um, I think it's interesting that that's a preserved nature, but climate change, uh, doesn't stop, um, anywhere on earth. So I heard that climate change is affecting the nature of Hokkaido, including, uh, the city. So what's happening as a result of warming temperature and other climate changes on the island? It's a great question. And it's obviously one that I think many regions around the world that have a focus on agriculture are struggling with. So obviously, you know, we hear about the impact of this on growing grapes in Champagne, for example, and other regions of France. What I think is, is perhaps, um, you know, you, not necessarily unique, but certainly interesting in, uh, in Hokkaido in particular is Hokkaido has been the breadbasket of Japan for many years, right? It is the home to most of the dairy production. Um, and, it, you know, there, there is a, you know, a, a deep industrial, well, I mean, industrial is not the right word, but there's an industry around food that gets exported to other parts of Japan um, in mass, right? What you've started to see as temperatures have climbed in Hokkaido is other products that weren't necessarily viable 20 or 30 years ago are starting to benefit from this incredibly rich volcanic soil and a lot of arable land, which is what Hokkaido has compared to other parts of Japan, which are incredibly densely populated. So one place that we see that is with rice. Hokkaido now has the ability to produce some local rice, and there are also some local uh, sake uh, producers as well. They're taking advantage of this which is just, I don't think would have been possible, again, at least as I understand it, you know, a few decades ago. Mm-hmm. The other industry that seems to be um, more viable now than maybe a few decades ago is the wine business. And, and Yoichi, it, which is not far from the Niseko Hidafu area, sort of between that area and Sapporo, um, is really 
becoming the home for wine uh, in, in Hokkaido, you're starting to see some really, really incredible expressions, again, of, of local terroir there. Um, so Domain Takahiko is, is one of them. Really interesting producer only doing Pinot Noir, right? And, you know, I think that, that um, one of the questions that comes up oftentimes is you're doing a Burgundian sort of grape uh, in a place that gets a lot more rain than Burgundy every year, right? And, you know, how do you work around those things? How do you, you know, what type of terroir are you creating? Because, again, this grape is very sensitive to that. And what I think that, that um, this particular winemaker has done is specifically try to create a wine that actually has a lot of umami in it, which is not something that you typically hear from winemakers. And, you know, I've had a chance to, to sample some of these um, wines. You know, they were poured at the, at the Noma pop-up in Kyoto in April, and then I had a chance to taste, to barrel taste with him on this last trip in September, which is really, really an honor. And, and so much of that comes down to Ioana Morelli and her, you know, just connections and knowledge throughout that region. But what you're hearing from, from these folks is that the, these slight shifts in climate are having, you know, some fairly big impacts. And as that continues, right, because, you know, these ripple effects only grow, um, they, they would expect these areas to, you know, perhaps be a bit more forgiving for growing grapes than they might have been. So I think that that's probably the the single biggest impact that, that I've seen and heard about. Um, and, and we don't really know, you know, what that looks like longer term, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, and I, you know, for, for the Ishiri, sorry, I, you know, just to take it back to the beginning of your question, for the Ishiri, you're still pretty far north and the sea temperatures are still pretty cold. So I didn't, hear anyone mention sort of specifically a, you know, a, a factor around climate change or, or global warming um, as they did, you know, in, in more Southern parts of Hokkaido. Mm. But again, I think it largely depends on, you know, how we are able to, you know, manage and, and um, keep some of these, you know, more dire potential outcomes in check uh, because obviously, so much of, of the bounty of that island is driven by the seawater temperature itself. Mm, right. Well, that is really interesting. Like good things happening thanks to the warming temperature, but also, I mean, like you said, it's all balance is the key. And that's the whole ecosystem that's been lasting for centuries. So hopefully everything's going to work well <laughs> in the long run. So, um, but it is exciting. You discovered so many different things and, uh, you know, Japan very well, deeply, through your multiple visits and network of friends there. So what's your impression of Hokkaido uh, compared to other parts of Japan, um, such as Tokyo, Osaka, Kyushu, Kanazawa, and so forth? And also, did you find a different mindset among Hokkaido people? It's a, it's a really interesting question, right? Uh, because... You know, Hokkaido is, it does have a different feel to it. And so, some of that comes from places like Niseko, which have over the past 10 or 15, 20 years really changed due to the amount of international attention and investment and the development of resort communities there that, you know, people are traveling from all over the world to experience this incredible 
powder and incredible skiing. And so obviously that, you know, has an influence that changes everything from architecture to cuisine to, you know, just the, a more international population that might be there year round. Um, I also think though that Sapporo to me is, is just a different city than places like Kyoto, for example. It's a younger city in terms of its, in terms of its, you know, actual age. And, you know, you see that in the architecture, you see that in the way that it's a city that very clearly uh, has a, has to deal with a cold winter, right? There's a lot of sort of sheltered arcades and ways that you can move through the city without getting pounded with snow and rain um, and stay relatively warm. You definitely have the influence of, of, you know, the incredible ability to access seafood, also the ability to access things like Hokkaido lamb, right? I mean, which is one of the reasons why Jinjisu Khan, this, this uh, Genghis Khan, right? Sort of style Mongolian barbecue. It's a little bit Korean. It's a little bit Mongolian. There's kimchi with it, that kind of thing. You know, it's a, a, a you know, very um, a local delicacy, right? At some level. Uh, I, I personally enjoy going out and eating and drinking in Sapporo, um, you know, in, in the same way that I sort of enjoy going out and eating and drinking in Osaka. It's, it's a lot less formal. It's a lot more um, boisterous in some ways. There's a lot, it just feels less, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe less formal is the right way to describe it. I mean, I'll tell you like just an anecdote. Last night that, you know, we had our group together in Sapporo, we took everyone out for Jujutsu Khan because it is something you have to do when you're there. And, you know, we'd gone through this incredible spread of like every form of the lamb you can get to and we're, we're pretty full uh there's a table next to us you know mom dad daughter family that had also completely overordered, and they had you know all of the things that we didn't order actually on their on their plates and just like we started talking to them and immediately they're you know throwing food at us right and that kind of thing would be like I've seen that in Osaka, but I haven't seen that in Tokyo, right? And I definitely haven't seen it in Kyoto, where suddenly, you know, we're integrated with a group where we, we have a language barrier, right? We're having these two different sort of separate experiences, and yet suddenly we're sharing food. Um, so I have always felt that real sense of, of um, conviviality in Sapporo in a way that, you know, may not always happen in places that are a little bit more rigid like Tokyo and Kyoto. I say Osaka because I just feel like Osaka is a place that also operates with less rigidity. Um, but again, it's a personal experience, right? And I certainly can't, can't guarantee that would be replicated, but I've had so many great nights out in that town um, that I really love. I think, I think that there is a sense that if, the big city isn't right for you, right? That you can do something really cool up in, in Hokkaido. You can still get land. You can do something that's a little bit different. You can be closer to the land in a way that you really couldn't do in Tokyo. So I, I suspect that that's also some of the draw as well. Mm. And, and wonderful thing, like everywhere else in Japan is it's so easy to get to. 
I'm always surprised. I have a, I have a wonderful friend in Japan who is in her late seventies now and has been just an incredible uh, supporter and skeleton key for craftspeople, you know, just incredibly uh, connected in the world of shokunin. And I saw her for lunch as I was leaving town, you know, four weeks ago or so. And she said, you know, I've never been to Hokkaido. And, you know, it's, it's not uncommon um, that, that you, you know, you might have someone who just has never traveled up there. And I just, you know, I always say just go because it is, you know, it's incredibly diverse. The product is incredible. The vibe, the energy of, of, of places like Sapporo is just amazing. And when you throw in the bounty of a place like Nishiri, if food is something that drives that curiosity that you want to explore, it will expand your mind. Mm, right. I think that you convinced uh, at least some of our listeners <laughs> to go to Hokkaido anytime, sometime soon. Um, yeah. So uh, what are your plans? Are you planning to go back to Hokkaido again sometime? Always. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's one of those places where it's, it's on my itinerary almost every trip. I think there's only been a few occasions that I haven't been able to make it up. I do really want to go back to Rishiri next summer. We're sort of at the point in the year where, you know, getting there gets harder. Um, the atmosphere, the cold, the snow, all those kinds of things starts to play into things. And there's you know less to do you know, from a, from a, a, a kind of a, a harvesting perspective, right. And we're out of the uni harvest, not really sure what happens with kombu as it gets cold. My, I suspect it gets harder. Same for, for fishing probably as well. But I think next summer, um, the plan would be to go for probably a week and really dig in. I'd like to see the process of harvesting kombu kind of from, from the, the first step on through the last I've seen, probably the middle section now, but I need to go back and see the first. Um, and I also just think there are folks that are keeping some really important culinary traditions alive. We, I, I feel like oftentimes we are so focused on the output of a lot of these um, uh, products, right? So we're focused on the dashi. We're focused on, you know, the beautiful piece of sushi on our plate, right. Or the ikura on our, you know, on our, on our rice, um, the, the understanding where these things come from and the, uh, skills and process that it takes to get, you know, from the ocean to our plate is also really worthy of documentation, especially when it comes to folks that have been doing the same thing for 75 or 80 or 85 years. I mean, that to me is just really special. And it's something that I reflect on when I'm sitting down at that beautiful table and eating that beautiful piece of fish or having that beautiful dashi broth, right? Um, I want to be able to understand, you know, how it got there. Mm, right. So, well, keep watching, keep um, recording and share all the stories with us again. So uh, where can we find your updates online and on social media? So I, I tend to use social media more when I'm working than, than when I'm not working. I mean, and, and part of that obviously is wanting to um, share things in real time to give people a glimpse into what we're doing. 
Um, and so my Instagram is M-P-M-A-G-E-R-S. Uh, and then obviously if I have, you know, publications or anything else coming out, it tends to get, you know, tend to post it there. Uh, my website is, is the same, M-P-M-A-G-E-R-S.com. And um, I am always, you know, looking to push the boundaries here and expand my horizons and experience as many of these really unique looks at, um, you know, pulling the curtain back on, uh, on, on food and craft anywhere I can. So I'm, I'm, I'm just really happy to get the opportunity to do it and looking forward to the next one. Mm, right. So come back and uh, talk all about whatever you find. So, yeah. <laughs> so well, I appreciate that. And I appreciate, you know, your curiosity and interest and generosity in, um, in having me on. And it's a great dialogue because I always learn a lot as well. And it helps me inform, you know, my understanding. Mm, right. So you're doing what we cannot do. Our listeners, me, cannot do. So, yeah. So good luck. And uh, we'll hope to have you back again soon. So thanks so much for joining us today, Mike. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. So listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for short topics or guests, please contact us at japaneats at heritageradionetwork.org or kyukatema.com. Japan Eats is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. Engineer Liam Uara, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Japan Eats is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.